Section 7 of Here and Hereafter. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. Here and Hereafter by Barry Payne. The Unfinished Game. At Tanslow, which is on the Thames, I found just the place that I wanted. I had been born in the hotel business, brought up in it, and made my living at it for thirty years. For the last twenty I had been both proprietor and manager, and had worked uncommonly hard, for it is personal attention and plenty of it which makes a hotel pay. I might have retired altogether, for I was a bachelor with no claims on me, and had made more money than enough, but that was not what I wanted. I wanted a nice, old-fashioned house, not too big, in a nice place with a longish slack season. I cared very little whether I made it pay or not. The Regency Hotel at Tanslow was just the thing for me. It would give me a little to do and not too much. Tanslow was a village, and though there were two or three public houses, there was no other hotel in the place, nor was any competition likely to come along. I was particular about that because my nature is such that competition always sets me fighting, and I cannot rest until the other shop goes down. I had reached a time of life when I did want to rest, and did not want any more fighting. It was a free house, and I have always had a partiality for being my own master. It had just the class of trade that I liked, principally gentlefolk taking their pleasure in a holiday on the river. It was very cheap, and I like value for money. The house was comfortable, and had a beautiful garden sloping down to the river. I meant to put in some time in that garden. I have a taste that way. The place was so cheap that I had my doubts. I wondered if it was flooded when the river rose, or if it was dropping to pieces with dry rot if the drainage had been condemned, if they were going to start a lunatic asylum next door, or what it was. I went into all these points and a hundred more. I found one or two trifling drawbacks, and one expects them in any house, however good, especially when it is an old place like the Regency. I found nothing whatever to stop me from taking the place. I bought the whole thing, furniture and all, lock, stock, and barrel, and moved in. I brought with me my own head-waiter and my man-cook, Englishmen, both of them. I knew they would set the thing in the right key. The head-waiter, Silas Goodhart, was just over sixty, with grey hair and a wrinkled face. He was worth more to me than two younger men would have been. He was very precise and rather slow in his movements. He liked bright silver, clean table linen, and polished glass. Artificial flowers in the vases on his tables would have given him a fit. He handled a decanter of old port as if he loved it, which, as a matter of fact, he did. His manner to visitors was a perfect mixture of dignity, respect, and friendliness. If a man did not quite know what he wanted for dinner, Silas had sympathetic and very useful suggestions. He took, I am sure, a real pleasure in seeing people enjoy their luncheon or dinner. Americans loved him and tipped him out of all proportion. I let him have his own way, even when he gave the thing away. Is the coffee all right here? A customer asked after a good dinner. I cannot recommend it, said Silas. If I might suggest, sir, we have the chartreuse of the old French shipping. I overheard that, but I said nothing. The coffee was extract, for there was more work than profit in making it good. As it was, that customer went away pleased and came back again and again and brought his friends too. Silas was really the only permanent waiter. When we were busy, I got one or two foreigners from London temporarily. Silas soon educated them. My cook, Timms, was an honest chap and understood English fare. 
He seemed hardly ever to eat, and never sat down to a meal. He lived principally on beer, drank enough of it to frighten you, and was apparently never the worse for it. And a butcher who tried to send him second-quality meat was certain of finding out his mistake. The only other man I brought with me was young Harry Bryden. He always called me uncle, but as a matter of fact, he was no relation of mine. He was the son of an old friend. His parents died when he was seven years old and left him to me. It was about all they had to leave. At this time he was twenty-two and was making himself useful. There was nothing which he was not willing to do, and he could do most things. He would mark at billiards and played a good game himself. He had run the kitchen when the cook was away on his holiday. He had driven the station omnibus when the driver was drunk one night. He understood bookkeeping, and when I got a clerk who was a wrong'un, he was on to him at once and saved me money. It was my intention to make him take his proper place more when I got to the Regency, for he was to succeed me when I died. He was clever, and not bad-looking in a gypsy-faced kind of way. Nobody is perfect, and Harry was a cigarette maniac. He began when he was a boy, and I didn't spare the stick when I caught him at it. But nothing I could do or say made any difference. At twenty-two, he was old enough and big enough to have his own way, and his way was to smoke cigarettes eternally. He was a bundle of nerves, and got so jumpy sometimes that some people thought he drank, though he had never in his life tasted liquor. He had inherited his nerves from his mother, but I dare say the cigarettes made them worse. I took Harry down with me when I first thought of taking the place. He went over it with me, and made a lot of useful suggestions. The old proprietor had died eighteen months before, and the widow had tried to run it for herself, and made a mess of it. She had just sense enough to clear out before things got any worse. She was very anxious to go, and I thought that might have been the reason why the price was so low. The billiard room was an annex to the house, with no rooms over it. We were told that it wasn't used once in a twelve-month, but we took a look at it. We took a look at everything. The room had got a very neglected look about it. I sat down on the platform, tired with so much walking and standing, and Harry whipped the cover off the table. This was the one they had in the ark, he said. There was not a straight cue in the rack. The balls were worn and untrue. The jigger was broken. Harry pointed to the board. Look at that, uncle, he said. Noah had made 48, Ham was doing nicely at 66, and then the flood came and they never finished. From neatness and force of habit, he moved over and turned the score back. You'll have to spend some money here. My word, if they put the whole lot in at a floor and were swindled. As we came out, Harry gave a shiver. I wouldn't spend a night in there, he said, not for a five-pound note. His nerves always made me angry. That's a very silly thing to say, I told him. Who's going to ask you to sleep in a billiard room? Then he got a bit more practical and began to calculate how much I should have to spend to make a bright, up-to-date billiard room of it, but I was still angry. You needn't waste your time on that, I said, because the place will stop as it is. You heard what Mrs. Parker said, that it wasn't used once in a twelve-month. I don't want to attract all the loafers in Tanslow into my house. Their custom's worth nothing, and I'd sooner be without it. Time enough to put that room right if I find my staying visitors want it, and people who've been on the river all day are mostly too tired for a game after dinner. Harry pointed out that it sometimes rained, and there was the winter to think about. He always had plenty to say, and what he said now had sense in it. But I never go chopping and changing about, and I had made my mind up. So I told him he had got to learn how to manage the house and not waste half his time over the billiard table. I had a good deal done to the rest of the house in the way of redecorating and improvements, but I never touched the annex. The next time I saw the room was the day after we moved in. 
I was alone, and I thought it certainly did look a dingy hole as compared with the rest of the house. Then my eye happened to fall on the board, and it still showed 6648, as it had done when I entered the room with Harry, three months before. I altered the board myself this time. To me, it was only a funny coincidence. Another game had been played there, and had stopped at exactly the same point. But I was glad Harry was not with me, for it was the kind of thing that would have made him jumpier than ever. It was the summer time, and we soon had something to do. I had been told that motor cars had cut into the river trade a good deal, so I laid myself out for the motorist. Tanslow was just a nice distance for a run from town before lunch. It was all in the old-fashioned style, but there was plenty of choice and the stuff was good, and my wine list was worth consideration. Prices were high, but people will pay when they are pleased with the way they are treated. Motorists who had been once came again and sent their friends. Saturday to Monday we had as much as ever we could do, and more than I had ever meant to do. But I am built like that. Once I am in a shop, I have got to run it for all it's worth. I had been there about a month, and it was about the height of our season, when one night, for no reason that I could make out, I couldn't get to sleep. I turned in, tired enough, at half-past ten, leaving Harry to shut up and see the lights out, and at a quarter-past twelve I was still awake. I thought to myself that a pint of stout and a biscuit might be the cure for that. So I lit my candle and went down to the bar. The gas was out on the staircase and in the passages, and all was quiet. The door into the bar was locked, but I thought to bring my passkey with me. I had just drawn my tankard of stout when I heard a sound that made me put the tankard down and listen again. The billiard-room door was just outside in the passage, and there could not be the least doubt that a game was going on. I could hear the click-click of the balls as plainly as possible. It surprised me a little, but it did not startle me. We had several staying in the house, and I supposed two of them had fancied a game. All the time that I was drinking the stout and munching my biscuit, the game went on. Click, 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 click. Everybody has heard the sound hundreds of times, standing outside the glass-paneled door of a billiard room, and waiting for the stroke before entering. No other sound is quite like it. Suddenly the sound ceased. The game was over. I had nothing on but my pajamas and a pair of slippers, and I thought I would get upstairs again before the players came out. I did not want to stand there shivering and listening to complaints about the table. I locked the bar and took a glance at the billiard room door as I was about to pass it. What I saw made me stop short. The glass panels of the door were as black as my Sunday hat, except where they reflected the light of my candle. The room then was not lit up, and people do not play billiards in the dark. After a second or two I tried the handle. The door was locked. It was the only door to the room. I said to myself, I'll go on back to bed. It must have been my fancy, and there was nobody playing billiards at all. I moved a step away, and then I said to myself again, I know perfectly well that a game was being played. I'm only making excuses because I'm in a funk. That settled it. Having driven myself to it, I moved pretty quickly. I shoved in my pass key, opened the door, and said, Anybody there? In a moderately loud voice that sounded somehow like another man's. I am very much afraid that I should have jumped if there had come any answer to my challenge, but all was silent. I took a look round. The cover was on the table. An old screen was leaning against it, had been put there to be out of the way. As I moved my candle, the shadows of things slithered across the floor and crept up the walls. I noticed that the windows were properly fastened, and then, as I held my candle high, the marking board seemed to jump out of the darkness. The score recorded was 66.48. I shut the door, locked it again, and went up to my room. 
I did these things slowly and deliberately, but I was frightened and I was puzzled. One is not at one's best in the small hours. The next morning I tackled Silas. Silas, I said, what do you do when gentlemen ask for the billiard room? Well, sir, said Silas, I put them off it if I can. Mr. Harry directed me to, the place being so much out of order. Quite so, I said, and when you can't put them off? Then they just try it, sir, and the table puts them off. It's very bad. There's been no game played there since we came. Curious, I said. I thought I heard a game going on last night. I've heard it myself, sir, several times. There being no light in the room, I've put it down to a loose ventilator. The wind moves it and it clicks. That'll be it, I said. Five minutes later, I had made sure that there was no loose ventilator in the billiard room. Besides, the sound of one ball striking another is not quite like any other sound. I also went up to the board and turned the score back, which I had admitted to do the night before. Just then, Harry passed the door on his way from the bar, with a cigarette in his mouth as usual. I called him in. Harry, I said, give me thirty and I'll play you a hundred up for a sovereign. You can tell one of the girls to fetch our cues from upstairs. Harry took his cigarette out of his mouth and whistled. What, uncle? he said. Well, you're going in, I don't think. What would you have said to me if I'd asked you for a game at ten in the morning? Ah, I said, but this is all in the way of business. I can't see much wrong with the table, and if I can play on it, then other people may. There's a chance to make a sovereign for you, anyhow. You've given me forty-five in a beating before now. No, uncle, he said, I wouldn't give you thirty. I wouldn't give you one. The table's not playable. Luck would win against Roberts on it. He showed me the faults of the thing and said he was busy. So I told him if he liked to lose the chance of making a sovereign, he could. I hate that room, he said as we came out. It's not too clean, and it smells like a vault. It smells a lot better than your cigarettes, I said. For the next six weeks, we were all busy, and I gave little thought to the billiard room. Once or twice, I heard old Silas telling a customer that he could not recommend the table, and that the whole room was to be redecorated and refitted as soon as we got the estimates. You see, sir, we've only been here a little while, and there hasn't been time to get everything as we should like it quite yet. One day, Mrs. Parker, the woman who had the regency before me, came down from town to see how we were getting on. I showed the old lady round, pointed out my improvements, and gave her a bit of lunch in my office. Well, now, I said, as she sipped her glass of port afterwards, I'm not complaining of my bargain, but isn't the billiard room a bit queer? It surprises me, she said, that you've left it as it is, especially with everything else going ahead and the yard half full of motors. I should have taken it all down myself if I'd stopped. That iron roof's nothing but an eyesore, and you might have a couple of beds of geraniums there and improve the look of your front. Let's see, I said. What was the story about that billiard room? What story do you mean? She said, looking at me suspiciously. The same one you're thinking of, I said. About that man, Josiah Ham? That's it. Well, I shouldn't worry about that if I were you. That was all thirty years ago, and I doubt if there's a soul in Tanslow knows it now. Best forgotten, I say. Talk of that kind doesn't do a hotel any good. Why, how did you come to hear of it? That's just it, I said. The man who told me was none too clear. He gave me a hint of it. He was an old commercial passing through and had known the place in the old days. Let's hear your story and see if it agrees with his. But I told my fibs to no purpose. The old lady seemed a bit flustered. If you don't mind, Mr. Sanderson, I'd rather not speak of it. I thought I knew what was troubling her. I filled her glass in my own. Look here, I said. When you sold the place to me, it was a fair deal. You weren't called upon to go thirty years back, and no reasonable man would expect it. I'm satisfied. 
Here I am, and here I mean to stop, and twenty billiard rooms wouldn't drive me away. I'm not complaining, but just as a matter of curiosity, I'd like to hear your story. What's your trouble with the room? Nothing to signify, but there's a game played there and marked there, and I can't find the players, and it's never finished. It always stops at 6648. She gave a glance over her shoulder. Pull the place down, she said. You can afford to do it, and I couldn't. She finished her port. I must be going, Mr. Sanderson. There's rain coming on, and I don't want to sit in the train in my wet things. I thought I would just run down to see how you were getting on, and I'm sure I'm glad to see the old place looking up again. I tried again to get the story out of her, but she ran away from it. She had not got the time, and it was better not to speak of such things. I did not worry her about it much, as she seemed upset over it. I saw her across to the station, and just got back in time. The rain came down in torrents. I stood there and watched it, and thought it would do my garden a bit of good. I heard a step behind me and looked around. A fat chap with a surly face stood there, as if he had just come out of the coffee room. He was the sort that might be a gentleman and might not. Afternoon, sir, I said. Nasty weather for motoring. It is, he said. Not that I came in a motor. You the proprietor, Mr. Sanderson? I am, I said. Came here recently. I wonder if there's any chance of a game of billiards. I'm afraid not, I said. Table's shocking. I'm having it all done up afresh, and then... What's it matter? said he. I don't care. It's something to do, and one can't go out. Well, I said, if that's the case, I'll give you a game, sir. But I'm no flyer at it the best of times, and I'm all out of practice now. I'm no good myself, no good at all, and I'd be glad of the game. At the billiard room door, I told him I'd fetch a couple of decent cues. He nodded and went in. When I came back with my cue and Harry's, I found the gas lit and the blinds drawn, and he was already knocking the balls about. You've been quick, sir, I said, and offered him Harry's cue. But he refused and said he would keep the one he had taken from the rack. Harry would have sworn if he had found that I had lent his cue to a stranger, so I thought that was just as well. Still, it seemed to me that a man who took a twisted cue by preference was not likely to be an expert. The table was bad, but not so bad as Harry had made out. The luck was all on my side. I was fairly ashamed of the flukes I made one after the other. He said nothing, but gave a short, loud laugh once or twice. It was a nasty-sounding laugh. I was at thirty-seven when he was nine, and I put on eleven more at my next visit, and thought I had left him nothing. Then the fat man woke up. He got out of his first difficulty, and after that the balls ran right for him. He was a player, too, with plenty of variety and resource, and I could see that I was going to take a licking. When he had reached fifty-one, an unlucky kiss left him an impossible position. But I miscued, and he got going again. He played very, very carefully now taking a lot more time for consideration than he had done in his previous break. He seemed to have got excited over it, and breathed hard, as fat men do when they are worked up. He had kept his coat on, and his face shone with perspiration. At sixty-six he was in trouble again. He walked round to see the exact position, and chalked his cue. I watched him rather eagerly, for I did not like the score. I hoped he would go on. His cue slid back to strike, and then dropped with a clatter from his hand. The fat man was gone, gone, as I looked at him, like a flame blown out, vanished into nothing. I staggered away from the table. I began to back slowly towards the door, meaning to make a bolt for it. There was a click from the scoring board, and I saw the thing marked up. And then, I am thankful to say, the billiard room door opened, and I saw Harry standing there. He was very white and shaky. Somehow the fact that he was frightened helped to steady me. 
good heavens uncle he gasped i've been standing outside what's the matter what's happened nothing's the matter i said sharply what are you shivering about i swished back the curtain and sent up the blind with a snap the rain was over now and the sun shone in through the wet glass i was glad of it i thought i heard voices laughing somebody called the score i turned out the gas well i said this table's enough to make any man laugh when it doesn't make him swear i've been trying your game of one hand against another and i dare say i called this score out loud it's no catch not even for a wet afternoon i'm not both-handed like the apes and harry bryden harry is as good with the left hand as the right and a bit proud of it i slid my own cue back into its case then whistling a bit of a tune i picked up the stranger's cue which i did not like to touch i nearly dropped it again when i saw the initials j h on the butt been trying the cues i said as i put it in the rack he looked at me as if he were going to ask more questions so i put him on to something else we've not got enough cover for those motor cars i said lucky we hadn't got many more here in this rain there's plenty of room for another shed and it needn't cost much go and see what you can make of it i'll come out directly but i've got to talk to that girl in the bar first he went off looking rather ashamed of his tremors i had not really very much to say to miss hesketh in the bar i put three fingers of whiskey in a glass and told her to put a dash of soda on the top of it that was all it was a full-sized drink and it did me good then i found harry in the yard he was figuring with pencil on the back of an envelope he was always pretty smart where there was anything practical to deal with he had spotted where the shed was to go and was finding what it would cost at a rough estimate well i said if i went on with that idea of mine about the flower beds it needn't cost much beyond the labor what idea you've got a head like a sieve why carrying on the flower beds round the front where the billiard room now stands if we pulled that down it would give us all the materials we want for the new motor shed the roofing sound enough for i was up there yesterday looking into it well i don't think you mentioned it to me but it's a rare good idea i'll think about it i said that evening my cook timms told me he'd be sorry to leave me but he was afraid he'd find the place too slow for him not enough doing then old silas informed me that he hadn't meant to retire so early but he wasn't sure the place was livelier than he had expected and there would be more work than he could get through i asked no questions i knew the billiard room was somehow or other at the bottom of it and so it turned out in three days time the workmen were in the house and bricking up the billiard room door and after that timms and old silas found the regency suited them very well after all and it was not just to oblige harry or timms or silas that i had the alteration made that unfinished game was in my mind i had played it and wanted never to play it again it was of no use for me to tell myself that it had all been a delusion for i knew better my health was good and i had no delusions i had played with josiah ham with the lost soul of josiah ham and that thought filled me not with fear but with a feeling of sickness and disgust it was two years later that i heard the story of josiah ham and it was not from old mrs parker an old tramp came into the saloon bar begging and miss hesketh was giving him the rough side of her tongue nice treatment said the old chap thirty years ago i worked here and made good money and was respected now it's insults and then i struck in what did you do here i asked waited at table and marked at billiards till you took to drink i said till i resigned from a strange circumstance i sent him out of the bar and took him down to the garden saying that i'd find him an hour or two's work now then i said as soon as i got him alone what made you leave he looked at me curiously i expect you know sir he said sixty-six unfinished 
and then he told me of a game played in that old billiard room on a wet summer afternoon thirty years before he the marker was one of the players the other man was a commercial traveller who used the house pretty regularly a fat man ugly-looking with a nasty laugh josiah ham his name was he was at sixty-six when he got himself into a tight place he moved his ball did it when he thought i wasn't looking but i saw it in the glass and i told him of it he got very angry he said he wished he might be struck dead if he ever touched the ball the old tramp stopped i see i said they said it was apoplexy it's known to be dangerous for fat men to get very angry but i'd had enough of it before long i cleared out and so did the rest of the servants well i said we're not so superstitious nowadays and what brought you down in the world it would have driven any man to it he said and once the habit is formed well it's there if you can keep off it i can give you a job weeding for three days he did not want the work he wanted a shilling and he got it and i saw to it that he did not spend it in my house we have got a very nice billiard room upstairs now two new tables and everything shipshape you may find harry there most evenings it is all right but i have never taken to billiards again myself and where the old billiard room was there are flower beds the pansies that grow there have got funny markings like figures End of section 7. Recording by Colleen McMahon.